0: To Conversations and Complexity. I am really pleased to be with Carrie Kaluski. Dr. Kaluski is one of the scientists in the uh, Collaboratory for Research and Innovation at Bridgepoint Hospital, which is part of the Sinai Health System. So, good afternoon and welcome, Carrie.
1: Good afternoon. Thanks, Ross. I'm really excited to be here today.
0: So, I like to think of you as uh, part of the future of health research in Canada uh, young, dynamic, great ideas. Uh, taking research to areas that have been neglected. Why don't you tell me a little bit about how it is that you came to be a researcher in the first place?
1: Thank you. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. I've taken some time even just recently to reflect on some of those key milestones and key moments that I've had along my journey and one of the big ones is after I trained as a social worker at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay and I always pictured myself as a frontline you know, worker working with patients and families in hospitals And I didn't initially see myself as a researcher, but my first job in a long-term care facility really opened my eyes to some of the challenges that we have in the healthcare system. So I would observe, you know, patients not getting a lot of attention from very, very busy care providers. I saw families that were burnt out and I saw a lot of people saying things like, well, we're doing the best we can in the system that we have. And I thought... This isn't good enough. I don't want to work in a system that doesn't allow us the time and the flexibility to do things that work for patients and families. And so I started looking for policy programs and degrees across Canada, and I found myself at the University of Toronto in the Institute of Health Policy Management and Evaluation And I thought, okay, now I'm in a position to not only understand the issues, but start to work through them to create a better system for people, instead of working in one that doesn't quite work well uh, for people, particularly people that have lots of health conditions and lots of social care challenges.
0: So that's interesting. You observed something, and there's kind of two forks in the road. You could have gone down an advocacy route. But you went down a research route. What made you think that the pursuit of more knowledge and information would be the right road?
1: I thought, you know, initially I thought it might be a bit easier because when I was talking to, to providers, I sensed a lot of well-meaning individuals who were just crippled by the system, who were experiencing a bit of what I call learned helplessness. And I thought, I went in there and said, hey guys, let's start to do things differently. Let's start to kind of change the way we practice and change the way we interact with patients and families. And they thought, oh, that's cute. That's, that's really nice. You're the new person with all this energy coming and wanting to make a change. And I thought, I can very well end up in that scenario where I've just kind of given up. I come in to do my nine to five the best that I can, but not being in a, in a position to really change practice. And I thought... I need to first understand what the system is, what we can do, and so I thought this research road would give me more exposure, but also put me in a position where I kind of understood, even just having a little bit of time on the front lines, I had a little bit of understanding now that could inform my research, and I felt that I'd be able to better translate my research to what's happening on the front lines. And that's what I try to do um, in the work that I'm doing right now. So I feel like I have a bit of both worlds that, that make me more of an applied health services researcher. Yeah.
0: And it's you also mentioned that you saw policy as an instrument of change. So I guess it's not an accident that you ended up in a policy-oriented research environment.
1: Exactly, exactly. And also, you know, I studied health policy, but then looking at the needs of individuals and families, you start to see that their needs um, intersect with other policy realms like transportation and housing policy and social policy. And it gets really complicated. And I think um, one of the challenges is that we, ha- we have a very siloed healthcare system where we need a health system that actually bridges the gap between all these different policy fields, all these different sectors to really truly meet the needs of people and their families. And so I studied health policy, but then started to realize there's more to it than, than just knowing, you know, what hospitals do and what the home care sector can and can't do. It's about how do we work with housing models? How do we work with financial supports to integrate services and get people what they need when they need it?
0: Great. So part of your research focuses on two highly neglected but critical elements in modern health and health systems. So your work on caregivers and carers is is salient in that regard, as is your focus on what are called alternative level of care. Uh, populations. Do you want to just tell our listeners who might not be from Ontario a little bit about what you're up to, what you're, as we were talking about uh, before, what you're chewing on? What are the hard, wicked problems that you're trying to sort out? Right,
1: right. So ultimately, I'm trying to better understand the experiences of patients and families. Um, But one wicked problem I'm really focusing on is people who get stuck in hospital. So this refers to people, they've had their hospital care and they've been, um, they're ready for discharge. A physician has said, yep, you're ready to go home or you're ready to go to your next point of care. But because the next point of care is not yet available, what happens is they get stuck in transition. So we refer to them as waiting for an alternate level of care. And so there's about 13% of Ontario hospitalized patients that are referred to as um, ALC patients is the term that we tend to use. And I really wanted to understand who are these people, what did they need, what are their histories, and what can we do to better support uh, their health and social care needs? And when I started to look at the literature, I was shocked at the very few studies that have been done on the experience of these people We tend to look at big data sets and classify them and characterize them and look at how many conditions they have and how long they've been in hospital and what setting of care they're waiting for, but we don't really know who they are and what they need. And I think if we want to actually practically solve some of the problems they have, we need to have a conversation with them. And so a study that I recently did up in northwestern Ontario where one in four hospital beds are occupied by ALC patients we um, we talked to caregivers to learn about their experiences, and one thing that really surprised me was I had naively thought, okay, if someone goes into the hospital, the caregiver gets a little bit of a break. You know, the, the patient's looked after, they're getting their treatments, and then the caregiver can, you know, they go and visit, but they can ultimately step back and take a deep breath and rejuvenate, but what I found was... Because people were in that transition point, they were no longer getting or considered to require medically necessary care. And so rehab drops off, the attention from care providers drops off, and suddenly you have a whole host of people that are languishing in hospital beds, not getting appropriate treatments. And so the caregivers naturally step in, they're providing mobility therapy, feeding, doing lots of extra things, advocating for their loved ones Um, negotiating with care providers who are very busy working with patients that really do need um, medically necessary care. But what happens is people are not, when they're ALC, they're not really getting anything. And caregivers would step in to do quite a bit of work. And you can see the stress levels don't go down. People are exhausted and they're saying, we just want to know what's going to happen next. Mm. And no one's really clear on what's going to happen next. So it's Quite interesting. Yeah,
0: your, your results are quite striking and I think um, unflinching in depicting what's actually happening. So there's a certain bravery to your work that I think is highly commendable. So if I were the Minister of Health and, and came to you and said, Carrie, you have my complete unfettered attention. I will give you all the resources you need to make changes. What would be the one or two things in, in this uh, imagined scenario that you would like to see happen?
1: So the first thing I would do is I would bring these caregivers back to the table and say, okay, let's take a deep breath and think about what do we need? Not necessarily just healthcare resources, but what do you need to not only look after your loved one, but to look after yourself? And there you start to open up the conversation for healthcare resources and social care resources and housing resources and you can start to put together a ground-up strategy that includes all the things that matter to people. And I think um, you don't necessarily need new money for that. I think we can have a look at what are we spending money on that people don't need that are, quite frankly, useless Mm. resources, and how could we start to spend get more value for dollars spent. But we need to ask the experts, and that's patients and families. And I don't want to exclude the care providers as well because they're under... A lot of stress trying to make it work for patients and families so I think there's some negotiation that needs to be involved when we're care planning and co-designing services so I think um, ultimately sitting down with patients and families asking them what they need talking to providers and saying how do we make it work collectively how do we trade off on certain things and make it uh, design these services in a way that's meaningful that's flexible Uh, that could not necessarily cure people, because we're not going to do that, but make their life a little bit easier than it currently is.
0: So this notion of co-design, I think, is really intriguing, because it's a way of balancing, I'd say, different epistemologies. So everybody wants a system that's evidence-based and context-dependent at one and the same time, yet they don't give credence to that context-dependent knowledge, which is usually found in the hands of caregivers. How would how we be able to sort of officially or systematically embed a co-design ethos uh, right. into healthcare?
1: Right. I think we could, we could, you know, start to look at the evidence to say what types of fundamentals are transferable, but also looking at what types of things do we need to be flexible on, because it's going to change from case to case. So I think, you know, we know that um, certain fundamentals are that people typically need both health and social care. They need someone they can count on. Maybe it's one particular provider who's accessible, who can answer questions for them. Um, We also need um, consistent people coming into the home instead of a whole host of different types of unknown care providers so they can develop a care plan that works for the family, but in a comfortable and familiar way. So I think of those as evidence-based fundamentals that need to be transferred. But given that knowledge, what does that look like? So we, we know consistent providers are, say, coming into the home, but what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Let's co-design that. You know, say if you have a fixed budget with you need some kind of expenditure limit, but you have a fixed budget and you can start to look at how do we spend the X number of dollars we have in a meaningful way and make sure that's flexible from case to case because we can't just create one solution and think it's going to work for everyone, but we do know enough about the fundamentals, I think, that that need to be embedded.
0: Great. Mm -hmm. So you're early in your career with obviously a huge uh, upside and future potential. What would you say are the kind of, if, if you were to be asked to go to a class of high school students, what would you want to tell them about the kind of defining characteristics or moments in your career and what sort of advice that you'd like to impart to them about becoming a scientist, particularly to, say, some of the younger women who are often discouraged from uh, pursuing careers in science and research?
1: I would say a lot of my experience has come from, I've had a lot of fantastic, you know, mentorship and I've taken the time to listen, Mm -hmm. not only to people who have mentored me about, you know, just going for it and not kind of Playing by the rules per se, networking, getting yourself out there, and being true to where your heart is. Because any research you do, it's there's a lot of grunt work, but you want to really enjoy, um, you know, what you're doing and feel passionate about the work. So,
0: great. So, a really important element of your day to day existence is you're a runner. Do you see there being a relationship between your running career and your research career?
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, with I just I switched from being a sprinter to a marathon runner. And I never thought I would make that transition, but I thought, you know what? I, I need a new challenge, and new challenges don't feel comfortable. It takes a lot of work, a lot of discipline similar to research, and also, you know, you can work and work and work and prepare all you want. But on any given day, when you step to that, you know, the start line and you run a race, you don't know what's going to happen. You could have done all the right things and you could have eaten all the right things and done all the right training, but you might have an off day or you might not get the result that you want. Similar to research, we put lots of grants out there. We submit lots of publications. We work really hard, so there might be a defined process. But you might not get the result you want, but you always have another chance. You have a new opportunity To learn from the experience and to, you know, get back up, get back to the race line, resubmit that paper, submit the grant for maybe the 10th time, God forbid, but this is what happens, you know, and you never know because the stars do align at some point and I think you just have to be relentless, you have to be focused, you have to have a vision and know where you're going and not to lose faith because Every time you have to get back up, you are a lot stronger. You know, you learn from the process. And so that goes back to my advice to new researchers and students and people moving into research is to, you know, be prepared for there's lots of rejection, but there's also lots of high points. And I think you just have to be willing to look at it as a long journey full of learning. And when the wins do come, they're that much more meaningful because you had to work so hard to get to them. So...
0: So there's Mm -hmm. a certain um, learning to be resilient that you get both in your athletic endeavors, but also, I think you rightly point out, research is as much about rejection as it is success. I always tell my students, you should be able to fill your, imagine you had a piece of paper for every uh, time you were got a rejection letter. Your wall should be double papered. Uh, if you're not failing, uh, you're not succeeding simultaneously. So how did you learn that resilience to get up and keep going? It doesn't come naturally to many people.
1: Yeah, no, I think you just, you have to keep your eye on the, the bigger prize at the end. And I think you realize too sometimes that the journey is just as valuable as the outcome. So I feel that any time I've put a grant together, you know, most of them, you know, if they do end in rejection. Some of them come through, but I have learned so much through the process. And I think being able to, you know, get through the down period of say not getting the grant, not getting the paper um, published, sitting down and reflecting on the whole process. I think over time, as you go through it again and again. You start to see the value of what you learn in the process and you learn about the value of the discipline and not losing heart and just taking all of these experiences and making your next application that much more savvy, that much stronger. So I think you just, it's something that you learn over time, but I've also been very fortunate that at the Collaboratory, we really lean on each other. So we celebrate the wins and we're also there for each other when things don't go our way. So I think it's important for anyone to work in a supportive context where you have the space to think, you have the space to celebrate the wins, to talk through the losses, but also um, gain some perspective on was it really a loss or is this something towards a bigger vision. So I mm-hmm. think it just takes time and experience.
0: Yeah, sometimes the grants you don't get are actually the better uh, outcome, to be honest, because <laughs> when you look at, oh my God, I would have actually have done that. Yeah. So looking to the future, what are the next horizons of projects for you?
1: So I'm thinking more about, I've done a lot of work on collecting experiences of people and families, so I have a good handle on, you know, what people need, what they're feeling, what they're thinking. I would like to move more towards co-designing interventions with with patients and families and actually testing those, but using methods, not necessarily RCTs, and we won't Mm -hmm. get into that, (laughs) some of the limitations of that, but... Looking at how can we meaningfully test interventions that are designed by people, but challenging the outcomes we we use to test the interventions, I think. There's a lot of focus on, you know, saving money and you know functional improvements and those types of things. But the populations I'm looking at, they're not necessarily going to improve on those outcomes. They're not necessarily gonna cost the system any less money, but maybe they'll have a better quality of life, or mm. maybe the caregiver will be just a little less stressed in doing what they do. So I, I'd like to in developing these interventions really kind of be uh, forceful a bit in challenging what what outcomes we use and trying to uh, put that together and try to get it funded. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But
0: I think that's a a really important horizon to start to rethink the uh, outcome space that we've been inheriting. So I want to pick up on one of the points about grant writing. It's, It's got its own form of discipline, kind of like training. You have to, you don't just step into a grant two days before it's due, you want to tell me a little bit about your thoughts on grants and grant writing?
1: Yeah, sometimes, you know, a a funding call comes out and I look and I say, oh, do I really want to, because you really have to put a lot of things aside to really focus on, you know, putting the best possible grant together, getting the best team together and putting your best foot forward essentially. And you're always trading that off with other things. And so sometimes I hesitate as to whether or not I want to put one in or do I want to focus on writing manuscripts. or You can try to balance both, but essentially you, you do trade off quite significantly. And I think there is so much value in, you do have to strategically choose the grant that you apply to, but there's value in taking that time to think and grants force you to rethink your program of work and see how all the pieces fit together. And you learn the so what. You're like, why am I doing this again? What's the big question? What gap does it fill? And how is this going to potentially make the healthcare system better? How do I sell this? And so there's never a harm in doing that. So even when the grant doesn't come in, if that's the case, you've still taken the opportunity to think about what you do, to think about your pitch and how the pieces fit together. And it's so valuable in guiding the rest of your work.
0: So. Well, Thank you, mm-hmm. Carrie. I hope this is the first of many conversations between us. I know you've got a lot of papers in press and coming out, and I hope in the very near future to have another conversation with you where we can explore in detail some of the results, because the work that you're doing and the results coming up with, I think, are really fundamental to us understanding what the challenges of healthcare care are uh, in the 21st century. So thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Great. Thank you, Ross.